so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I've been wearing these clothes for days. <laughs> Josh hasn't Josh hasn't left his bedroom since the election ended. He's just been zooming everybody. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, re- I I still I'm not entirely sure what we're doing here, bro. We're gonna I'm gonna ask oh you for word. your top line. I'm gonna it's, ask you for your top line thoughts. You're oh, gonna give okay. us some. We're gonna react to those things. By the time we get done talking, you're gonna have plenty more to say. You can't hear me anymore because you took your headphones off. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindy Nicolay. Hello from our society's version of um, Election Groundhog Day. It really is. And with us on the show, but not here yet, is Brent Leatherwood. Brent is having Wi-Fi issues at the moment, which is, you know perfect for the guy who knows the most about elections on the episode we're going to be talking about the election but he will be with us shortly we're looking forward to having brent join us and today's show is going to be a little bit different because it is election week and there is so much to talk about we're going to spend a lot of time uh, reflecting on what we know right now and thinking through this week and the outcome of the election and we're going to do that when brent joins us in a few moments but Lindsay, uh so we can get started tell us what else the erlc has been talking about this week So we're going to give a rundown this morning, a quick rundown of three articles that actually do have something to do with uh, the presidential election. First off, we have one by an intern of ours, Jordan Wooten, and he talks about three ways that Christians can mend the political rural-suburban divide. So say that five times fast, rural-suburban divide. And he says this, it's undeniable that we live in a divided America, fragmented in almost every way imaginable. This division has not spared the rural-suburban dynamic, but has widened its fissures further beyond just the miles that separate them. And then he goes on to talk about an article by David French and in the New York Times, and he gives his own story about living in uh, a rural area and then in the suburbs and the differences he's seen there. And it's really important for us as Christians because we're called to be peacemakers. And we have seen in the midst of this contentious, drawn-out election how that divide is real and how it affects real people and what we think about each other. So I would really encourage you to read this article and um, consider how you as a believer can be a peacemaker across those divides. That's really good, Lindsay. And just to put out a plug there, first of all, that Jordan is a stellar intern and he's a really, really capable writer. And so I would commend this piece to our readers if for that reason only. Also, because look, we're always trying to plug the ERLC internships. We have interns with us basically year round. Our big internship is the summer internship. It's usually for 
uh, people who are in college. And so if you have a college student in your house or you are a college student, we would love to have you spend uh, about six weeks with us in the summer. And so you can get more information from that or about the internship at ERLC.com. But we would, uh, just about this article in particular, it's, it's important because one of the things that we focus on a lot is how to help Christians escape some of the echo chambers that they live in and the fact that we, we tend to think the most about the people that we see and interact with every day. And that a lot of times, because there is this not only physical distance, but even even kind of social distance, uh, that, that word, although that phrase has taken on a totally new meaning uh, during COVID, sometimes we're, we're not as aware of the experiences and the difficulties and just, just the way of life of people uh, who may, may only live a few miles down the road from us, uh, but we are, you know, totally unaware of what's going on. A lot of times that causes needless division and fracturing in our society. And so this is just, uh, this is just a basic thing from Jordan on, on how to look at this one specific divide in terms of the rural suburban divide. Well, and, and sadly, another turn of the phrase for social distance, we get a lot of our information about, about people who are different than us on social media and it creates that social distance and it's not usually very accurate. So we would encourage you to step outside of your of your house and step to the other side of the street and just get to know people who are different than you and have different views than you. You know, Lindsay, it's, it's interesting that you brought up social media there just because one of the things I think is most fascinating is there was, and it's been years now, uh, but Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, I think did an interview where he was talking about when, when they created Facebook, they thought that it was going to be this incredible mechanism or tool to bring people together because it was going to allow people to interact with all kinds of people who were different from them. And so that would kind of heal a lot of these divides. But in reality, it had literally the opposite effect because what it enabled people to do is no matter where they lived or how far away they might be from other people who share their presuppositions of worldview, it made it so much easier for them to connect with those people and then find themselves in these kind of digital echo chambers where their own worldview is being constantly reinforced and affirmed. So true. And and now we know that the algorithms are set up that way. And just the reality is given over to our own flesh, we're just naturally going to um, gravitate to people who are more like us, who um, who affirm what it is that we already think are preconceived notions. And truly, we really need the Lord and His power to tear down that dividing wall of hostility and to give us hearts of, of reconciliation and love for our neighbors. Uh, next up, of course, because we can't let an episode go by without talking about an article by Josh Wester— you would think that he pays us to talk about his articles uh, every week just to make him sound really, really good. Although I'll just the tell truth- the listeners that you pick the articles that we talk about. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the reality is you're just a good writer, Josh. And this is really important even in our election season. This is part of our primer series, again, that we've been talking about educating uh, believers on ethical issues and providing them with short books that they can read about a variety of topics. So the one that you tackled, uh, your article is titled, Why Would Christians Support Religious Freedom? Learning from Early Christian Leaders. And you said this in your article, 
Religious freedom is among the most precious things in existence. At its core is both a theological and political proposition. Theologically, to defend religious freedom is to recognize that every person is accountable to God as an individual. No one has the right to decide who or how another person worships. And politically, to defend religious freedom is to recognize that a state has no role in determining what a person holds as ultimate. And that just that summarizes why religious liberty is such an important issue for us at the ERO. We'll see. Do you want to tell us more about it, Josh? Sure. I mean, I think the, you know, religious liberty is something that is very common. It's in our vocabulary of what we do every day at the RLC because it's in our name. It's, it's a huge part of our job. But for a lot of Christians, you know, this can actually be kind of counterintuitive because they're thinking about the fact that as Christians, we have very specific beliefs about salvation, about what it means for a person uh, to to have God's forgiveness and to be welcomed into his family and have the reward and hope of heaven. Those are like for Christians, we, we believe there's only one way that you can have that. And that is through faith and repentance in Jesus and his saving life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we, we don't think there is any other way. So why then would Christians support religious freedom, freedom for other people to believe all kinds of things that we believe are false. And, it, and it's because as Christians, we believe, and this is what this is what the history of the church has taught us, that Jesus is the only Lord of the conscience. He's the only one who can command a person to repent and to believe, and that every person who comes to God has to come to God as an individual. And so we can't pass laws. We can't have the government make laws that tell people, you must worship this way. You must believe this way, because what that does is create false converts and a false religion. It does not lead to true faith and true Christianity. And so the church, uh, going back for hundreds of years, I mean, there's an interesting history of religious freedom in terms of the Christian church. And I talk about it a little bit in this article, and I really am highlighting the, the amazing work that Robert Louis Wilkin did in his book, Liberty and the Things of God. And so this article is really just commending this book to you so that you can learn about the Christian roots of religious freedom. You know, and I confess, I didn't think much about religious liberty before coming to the ERLC and just took it for granted. And so I'm just realizing how precious it is and how thankful we should be right now as as believers or as citizens living in America, where by and large, our religious freedoms are protected. Uh, so thanks for writing this article and for giving us a book that we can read about the topic. And then finally, we just have a reflection that helps recalibrate our hearts and our minds during this season by our colleague Marissa. And she uh, she's written about fear. And her article is titled, What Should We Do With the Fear We Feel in 2020? Trusting God in the Midst of Pandemics and Politics. And I think if there's one word that describes how many people have felt during this year, it's been fearful because of coronavirus and the unknowns, because of the political climate and the election and the unknowns of what's going to happen. But Marissa calls us back to trust in our God, back to what Scripture tells us is true about Him. She also gives us a few practical tips to help us not give into that fear and not feed that fear because of uh, the different habits that we take on. So I would commend this article to you just as a way to remind yourself before the Lord that um, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And regardless of what's going on around us, he's promised to walk with us, to sustain us, and he's promised to to build his kingdom and do good to his people. You know, Lindsay, as you were just kind of walking through that, the thing that it made me think about is sometimes when we when we use some of this language talking about 
the, uh, not having a spirit of fear. It feels like we are all, almost putting out these kind of pat or trite answers. But the truth is that some of these really simple things in the Christian faith are also some of the most important things in the Christian faith. And so I, I don't know, you know, we're, we're talking about an election week in the, in the midst of 2020 and a year where we are experiencing a global pandemic. There's a lot of things for people to fear. And there are so many people even that I know listening to this podcast who are right now going through really, really difficult situations. This is one of those things where sometimes the best thing that you can do is just receive this plain, simple reminder that Jesus is Lord, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, that he is in control, that he cares for us, and that no matter what happens, that like whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself in, God is walking through those things with you that the Spirit of God lives inside of you if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation. And these are reminders that we really need. And so I'm grateful that Marissa wrote this. Marissa also, by the way, former ERLC intern. So uh, again, you should check out the ERLC internship if, if that would apply to you, because we have worked with some really great people and they've gone on to do really great stuff. Yes, another plug for that internship. You know, and Marissa says in the article, those feelings of fear are real. And the truth is that Jesus doesn't dismiss them. The Father doesn't dismiss them. He addresses them. And Jesus says this over and over again in in uh, the New Testament, you know, do not fear. And then the, the uh, writers of the New Testament also address this. And so he recognizes our fear and he... Um, equips us in the midst of it, and He walks with us through it. And truly, with the Lord is the only way to walk through fear. I can't imagine being fearful apart from knowing His goodness and His sovereignty and His trustworthy character. So that's just a little look at what we've got going on on our on our site this week. I know all thoughts are on the election. A lot of these articles are tilted that way and can apply to what we might be thinking about. But we've also highlighted some important work that we're doing in D.C. as well uh, because the policy wheel keeps turning and the ERLC keeps working tirelessly on things like religious liberty and foster care. So go to ERLC.com, check out what's happening. But Josh and then Brent out there in the through the airwaves, who's going to be joining us soon. That's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of The Christmas We Didn't Expect by David Mathis. 25 daily reflections for Advent will help you to adore Jesus, the one who came to save us and make our futures certain. Find out more about this book at thegoodbook.com. We have Brent with us now, and so we are excited to just kind of come together and have a roundtable conversation. Uh, we're recording this on Friday morning as the final results of the presidential election are still being determined. And so, Brent, I guess we should just start with you giving us what are some of your top line thoughts from the week, reflecting on the election and what you've seen? What's on your mind? Well, we should we should let people know that when you say the final results are in, it's not the final tally uh, because because votes in a typical year tend to take days, if not weeks, particularly in California because it has such a huge population. It takes weeks to tabulate the votes there, but scientifically, or I guess I should say analytically, uh, we can tell by the number of votes that are in 
who is likely to win the election. And that's when a call is made for our folks. So uh, essentially, what that leads me to what I would say my top line takeaway is, this is all very normal. It's only because all of us are watching it, all of us are paying attention to it nationally, that you're just seeing the system play out in real time. Uh, But at the end of the day, it now looks very clear uh, that former Vice President Joe Biden is on his way to becoming the president-elect, and uh, it appears that the Democrats in the U.S. House have had their majority diminished, and it looks like Republicans are likely to keep the Senate, although uh, we still are waiting for final results in Alaska. Again, very normal. And it appears, it appears that we're going to have two uh, runoffs in Georgia. Uh, Those will take place in January. Again, all of this very normal. There have been accusations, some of them completely unfounded. Others where I think maybe some legitimate questions have been raised, but they have been easily answered or rectified within mere moments. And and maybe we'll get to a few examples of those. But it appears that there is no sort of widespread fraud. Uh, There is no sort of illegal tampering. It doesn't appear that any sort of outside actors uh, have influenced any sort of vote tallies, uh, as as we were fearful that the Russian government uh, or the Chinese government uh, or others may attempt to do, this actually appears to be a very normal election in terms of how it has uh, been carried out. And I think that is something that all of us should be thankful for. Brent, I think that's a really helpful place for us to start, you know, in emphasizing the fact that this is this is very normal, even in the midst of, you know, a year where we are facing a pandemic, where we do have more people in more states voting by mail. And so we can talk a little bit about some of the, you know, some of the issues that have that has created in terms of ballots being processed. And, you know, I, I know people have some questions about the integrity of the vote because of the, the mail-in ballot process. And so I think that's something definitely to revisit. But one thing you said a minute ago that, that really struck me is I saw, I think last night, California was still processing. And you see all these other states where it's like 90, 95% of the vote in, 98% of the vote in, 86% of the vote in. California still had 4.5 million ballots to process uh, last night. And that's because they have such a huge population. And so we forget a lot of times that there are 40 million people that live in California. And so even though they have you know more ballots to count than people that live in probably, I don't know, the bottom 15 states, 20 states, that's, that's still normal. It's still a part of the process. Right. And so like you brought up mail-in bouts. So let's, let's talk about that for uh, a minute. Earlier this fall, uh, and, and even actually beginning late in the summer, uh, when it appeared that more voters were likely, due to the pandemic, were likely to take advantage of the absentee and, and mail-in ballot process, President Trump was directing his supporters to not utilize that option because he was he was saying, hey, it, it's very likely to be fraudulent. I, I ideally would like my voters to vote on Election Day. Well, Republicans did that in mass across the country. 
On the other side of the aisle, uh, polling tells us Democrats were more likely uh, to be concerned about the coronavirus. And so they overwhelmingly took advantage of mail-in uh, and absentee ballots, which, again, that, that, that is not new to this election. Uh, the absentee program has been around for decades, and the mail-in ballot has been something that many states have successfully used in, in previous elections. So we've got Democrats, by and large, using mail-in ballots. We've got Republicans showing up to physically vote on Election Day. And guess what? If your state doesn't count mail-in and absentee ballots and even early vote, uh, early voting as it is occurring. So that's what happens in Florida. That's what happens right here in Tennessee. As those votes are banked, the Secretary of State, which in each state, that is generally the individual responsible for uh, carrying out the election, they will, they will tally up the votes each and every night at the end of the day when the polls close during early voting. If your state doesn't do that, and guess what? In states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, they don't do that. They wait until the polls close on election night to begin uh, counting them. And even then, they will count the election day votes first before they get to all of those mail-in ballots. Well, this year, we had a record number of folks utilize mail-in and absentee programs. And that is what is known. Uh, th this was pointed out. Axios pointed this out. They reported on this uh, back in September that we're very likely to see something called the red mirage, where Republicans showing up to vote on election day will have their votes counted first, and then whoever participates in the mail-in ballot program will have their votes counted second. And so that's why you started seeing in some of these states, President Trump jump out to a lead. And then as the mail-in ballots started getting counted, that, that number came down. There was a Midwestern state where the opposite happened, Ohio. Ohio does it the opposite way. They count mail-in ballots first and then election day votes. And so maybe folks were you know paying attention. Maybe they noticed this. Ohio, very early on, looked like Vice President Joe Biden would potentially do really well in Ohio. And then they started counting the election day votes, and Republicans had the opportunity to, to reclaim the state, as a lot of people thought would happen. And that's exactly what happened. There was no voter fraud. There was no craziness that went on with, with ballots being stuffed after the fact. It's just that uh, each state does this a little differently. Brent, I think one of the things that you've helpfully pointed out so many times is the fact that uh, we talk about the election, but it's not actually the election. It's not a national election. These are being done state by state. We're, we're watching 50 state elections happen all at the same time. And so there are different rules in every state, and those are, you know, because the states themselves decide on the way that they're going to conduct their elections. One of the things that have, has been most uh, helpful to me is last week on the podcast, we had Secretary Trey Hargett, who is the Secretary of State uh, for Tennessee, on the podcast to talk to us about his role. And, and a lot of people don't know this. They don't know who's in charge of elections in their state, but it is. It's the Secretary of State, and they, they oversee the election process. Uh, but in these various states where they have been trying to finalize their, their tallies, and especially these swing states where we're waiting to, to see who's going to win because it could affect you know the, the electoral college math to, to put either Joe Biden or Donald Trump over the 270 threshold. 
these secretaries of, of state have come out and, and they've all just explained where we're at in the process, how uh, the votes are being counted, why it's taking so long or where these votes are coming from and what's, you know, j- just so that people won't be surprised and that they're trying to be transparent and make sure there's a lot of information available. Brent, I think it might be helpful to talk about what happens. You know, there's been some questions about the watchers, you know, there's people who are supposed to be, uh, you know, observing uh, the the counting process. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what it, what is typical just in terms of the makeup of people who oversee election sites and then potentially the like the people who are observing as these ballots are being counted? Okay, Brent. So I am not a political nerd like you and Josh, so I may not have a ton of questions, but I do know that some people are wondering why every state is different. And then I wanted to bring up wherever this fits in the discussion that, you know, I think back in 2000, we didn't know the results of the election until, was it December? I think one of our colleagues posted in... um, in Slack, which is just wild. Um, but yeah, then it they've, took 36 days for them to process. Which is crazy. And then Jeb Bush tweeted and said, you know, we changed our we changed our laws after that. So talk to us about, you know, what that means and what Florida learned from that process and potentially what we'll learn farther down the road. Yeah. The Constitution gives the responsibility to actually carry out elections to the state. Each respective state is allowed to determine, you know, what elections will look like, what the process looks like to carry them out, what it looks like to what the procedures will be after the votes are in. That is, again, very normal. That's that harkens back to the federalist system that we were established under. So there there are some voices out there that I, I think they're trying to be helpful, but they're trying to say, well, we just need the the federal government to step in here and, and, you know, make a one-size-fits-all approach. Well, that just, it, it doesn't look the same to have a really heavily populated state like Florida uh, have the same exact procedures as a, as a, uh, a state that is much more rural like uh, Alaska, for example, where people literally have to drive in from miles and miles around to get their votes counted. So it just, every state should kind of have that flexibility. I would say that that's what it is. You know, you pointed out Florida. So obviously we all remember, uh, well, most of us should remember what happened in 2000, uh, where President George W. Bush ultimately carried the state over uh, former Vice President Al Gore by a grand total of 537 votes. There were some really unique factors uh, that that made that kind of come together. Florida used a really complicated ballot called a butterfly ballot. Uh, and it had you actually punch holes <laughs> in your ballot. And, and some of those holes, if you didn't punch all the way through, they had what was called hanging chads. We probably all remember what the, the folks who were counting the votes and tabulating them up, they would, they would hold up these ballots and try and figure out, is that exactly what the voter meant? And so uh, thankfully, after that experience, they did away with that. They modernized things. Uh, they decided, and this was one of the important um, factors and, and holdings from the Supreme Court decision at the time, was that you just needed to have a uniform way of counting the votes. And, and ultimately, that's, that's what settled uh, things in Florida. A, a lot of folks think that the Supreme Court stepped in and said, George W. Bush is the winner. No, that's, that's actually not what happened. They just wanted the votes to be counted in the same way uniformly across the state. And so, uh, yeah, so Governor Jeb Bush, uh, who was governor at the time, led the effort 
to, to just kind of reform some of the ways that they do things in Florida. And now Florida is actually a model state when it comes to counting votes. They made sure, as I mentioned earlier, to count votes as they come in during early vote, uh, make sure that absentee uh, ballots are are counted as they come in. Uh, and so Florida is very good, very efficient now. They certainly learned their lesson uh, from 2000. And then, Josh, to go back to your question on uh, these kind of review boards or folks who are observers. So I'll, I'll speak from my experience in Tennessee. In Tennessee, uh, the state party is allowed to have folks certified uh, across the state in each county to go in where votes are uh, occurring on election day. And if there are folks that want to dispute those results, you can uh, have folks present for those. That's very normal. Uh, you you typically, in a presidential year, you will work with the presidential campaign to identify the folks that you want in there, uh, and they are backed up by what's called election day operations. Uh, again, those are generally run by uh, the party and the presidential campaign, and, and essentially what that is, is, is that's a team of lawyers and, and legal experts uh, who you can call on uh, around the state if there is some disruption, if there's some um, issue that comes up. Uh, maybe maybe a few machines at uh, a polling location weren't working properly, or uh, maybe a precinct opened late uh, and the the time frame needs to be extended. I mean, it just any number of things that come up. Again, that's all very normal. Uh, that that's not something unique that happened in in this election because it's happened in nearly every election uh, that goes on. And so, yeah, you you want to make sure and have your representatives uh, in there observing things, asking questions, and just making sure that things work properly. And the great news is it seems like throughout the country, we really had a pretty remarkable election, given that it, it occurred in the midst of a global pandemic. So I'm really encouraged by how this was carried out across the country. So I have a question about, you know, possible legal recourse that people have been talking about, particularly on the right. You know, President Trump has, in my opinion, said some pretty outrageous things from his press conference. And some people have been wildly tweeting on Twitter. And so there's been discussions about suing and, and recounts and things like that. So what actually is the process? What's the reality of what really what could happen if Biden is announced as the president-elect? Well, so generally, and look, I, I'm taking a lot of information here uh, based on reading some particular things and then also uh, listening to uh, the Dispatch podcast where uh, Sarah Isger, who formerly worked at the Department of Justice in the Trump administration, uh, she is a fantastic operative. Uh, I knew her back when I worked at the, the state party uh, and, and she worked uh, with the Republican National Committee, uh, I think even before that. And, um, and so uh, some of this information is coming from her. Generally, when people are talking about legal options following an election, they usually are meaning recounts. And so let's, let's talk about those. Most states have a legal provision that if an if a election result is within a certain window, usually it is half a percent or 10,000 votes or 1%, something like that, they will either A, do an automatic recount 
or B, give the campaigns the option to call for a recount. And some states will make the campaigns actually pay for that. Uh, it, it varies. And campaigns also can look at results in different counties and, and in some cases just ask for various counties uh, to be recounted. And so that usually is what we're looking at most of the time. That does not actually involve a lawsuit uh, or, or legal pleading. As a matter of fact, in Wisconsin right now, uh, I think as we're recording this, I don't think anything has changed. But President Trump's campaign has asked for Wisconsin uh, to do a recount there. It's important to know that over the course of the last uh, probably 20 years, the average recount around the country has netted approximately uh, 150 to 200 votes being tabulated differently than they were initially. So if you're in a situation where the result is only, uh, there's only a disparity of maybe a couple hundred votes, okay, then 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 maybe there is something there uh, that a recount will turn up and, and could potentially change the result of that particular, you know, whether it's a county or a state, change that particular result. When you're getting into the margins much above that, though, thousands and tens of thousands, which is really what we're looking at now in, in Wisconsin, I mean, it would be unheard of for a statewide result of that large of a difference to be overturned by a simple recount. Uh, there are some other challenges out there. Uh, th there's a there's a challenge coming out of Michigan uh, saying that uh, one observer in one county didn't get the access that that he wanted. The county has responded, "Hey, he's gotten as much access as all the other campaigns. Uh, we're trying to maintain some semblance of social distancing in the midst of a pandemic. That that is something that probably will be worked out. It's not likely to change the outcome of the votes themselves." There's another challenge in Pennsylvania that has to do with ballots that have come in after the postmark deadline. Those ballots, the, the state is aware of, uh, we're probably talking a few hundred. Uh, again, the margins that we're seeing Vice President Biden pile up in Pennsylvania, those probably are not going to be that consequential. So even if they threw out all of them, uh, it's not going to get to the place where Pennsylvania looks like it would come back into the fold uh, for President Trump's campaign. That doesn't mean that they should be counted or not uh, counted at all. I mean, the, the the legal process there will play out. Again, very normal stuff. This happens all the time. I was involved in a very close election, about 55 votes uh, in a smaller rural county here in Tennessee. I was the one who contested it. Uh, because it just didn't seem to match up with any of the data that we had. Uh, I, I visited the election commission in this county uh, a couple of times. Uh, they brought out the different votes so I could actually see them for myself. And ultimately, I had to drop it because you know why? The county officials did what they were supposed to do and it tabulated. It turns out some of my data was just wrong. That happens. That's very normal. And that's, uh, I just keep coming back to that. There, there is yet to be any sort of proven allegation of widespread voter fraud across the country. Brent, I think that's a really important point because you're not saying, and not, none of us are saying that there's not, we're not going to find any evidence of voter fraud anywhere on any scale. 
probably in an election where uh, this many millions of people participated, historic numbers of people have voted, we're going to find probably in some places isolated cases involving voter fraud. But what we're saying is there is neither historically nor is there likely or any evidence now uh, of any kind of massive or widespread fraud that could have altered uh, the results of this election, particularly the the presidential election. The, the future of the presidency is not hanging in the balance right now based on whether or not votes cast were, were legitimate. That 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 is exactly right, Josh. And I mean, look, we're going to have these isolated stories that, uh, again, they they probably there's there's some truth there that easily explains what's going on. So uh, earlier this week, uh, there were widespread reports of some like three hundred thousand ballots uh, that did not get delivered by the U.S. Postal Service. Well, a if that's true, that's not voter fraud. That's incompetence on the part of the postal service. B, once you dig in a little bit, so this this was just just running like wildfire around social media on, on both the left and the right. Aha, we, we actually found it. No, what it is, it actually has a pretty simple explanation. There was, right before election day, uh, there was a judge who demanded legally for the U.S. Postal Service to make sure that all ballots uh, get to their intended place where they need to go to be counted. Then there were reports that 300, ba- 300,000 ballots didn't make it uh, to that. that. That's actually not what happened. The Postal Service, in an attempt to meet what the judge was requiring of them, took them out of the stream, the typical stream of mail, to speed them up in the process to make sure they did get uh, to the various election commissions uh, to be counted. So they didn't have what was called a mail scan uh, to, that, that is a part of the normal process. Uh, that, that's not fraud. <laughs> that, that's the system actually trying to work to accommodate uh, the number of votes that were going through the, the mail process at the time. Again, that, that doesn't mean that maybe somewhere there's, there's not like a, a, a bag of ballots that, that's still waiting uh, in some mail facility in, you know, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But I, I mean, it's just, it, it's not this widespread thing as we all want to, as we all see on social media that causes us to, to freak out. And that, that probably, like you should take a step back from the election itself. Isn't that what we see all the time in social media? There's something going on in, you know, Seattle, Washington, and, and social media makes it seem like it's happening right in our backyard. When local authorities there are working it out, they're, they're taking care of the problem or whatever, it's not some national issue. And so we all just need to take a breath right now and realize that we just went through an election that, again, given all the circumstances like a pandemic, it actually seems like it was carried out fairly well by the campaign workers, the volunteers, uh, the election officials, like, I'm just so thankful for them uh, this week because they seem to be, have done a fantastic job. Brent, again, I think that's, I think that's really great. And look, if you're, you know, if you're a supporter of President Trump and you are frustrated or concerned, like that's, that's totally understandable. Everybody wants to make sure, everyone should want to ensure that every vote that was cast legally is legally counted. Senator Ben Sass uh, released a statement uh, talking about how fraud is poison uh, to self-government. And he said, you know, if the president's team has real evidence, they need to present it immediately to the public and to the courts. Uh, and every legal vote needs to be counted according 
into the relevant state laws because that, and then he said, this is our American system and it works. And I, I think that's exactly right. Like all of us are for seeing every vote that was cast legally, legally counted. And so far there's been, there's been no real evidence to suggest that anything different than that has happened. And so uh, as we are waiting to, to see the election results, you know, finally tallied and then certified, I, I think that we need to pay attention to any, you know, any claims of, of malfeasance or or fraud, but at the same time know that so far uh, those things just have not materialized. Look, if you are a a supporter of President Trump, uh, if you are a volunteer for his campaign, if you're somebody that went out and knocked doors or made you know hundreds, if not thousands of of volunteer phone calls, believe you me, I understand if you're feeling a little deflated right now. Uh, I was. I ran a very hard-fought campaign uh, just outside of Nashville in kind of a, a district that we were uh, doing everything we could to flip it, and we lost by 13 votes. And let me tell you, when you have that kind of a result <laughs> where, where you start thinking, okay, I, I could have just driven 13 people uh, to the polls in in this particular county uh, to to make up that difference. I mean, this can certainly be a time of of frustration. But I, I guess a, I just want to say uh, the the system worked. Have confidence in the system. It's a it's a legitimate outcome that that we're seeing. Uh, and, and b. Uh, just know that, I mean, these campaigns took two very different kind of paths in terms of how they were engaging voters and turning voters out. Uh, and we're going to learn a lot from this because there, there's a lot of evidence out there to suggest that uh, the Republican side of things really turned out a great number of voters in the midst of a pandemic. And at the same time, uh, Vice President Biden's campaign uh, and the Democrats they seem to have found out a way to bring more voters to the fold from, from their side of things. At the end of the day, frustration is very normal, but I think this gets back to something our boss, Dr. Moore, says all the time. As Christians, let's not find, let's not root our identity in politics or in any particular political partisan persuasion. Uh, let's Let's rest in the comfort of knowing that, that Jesus is still on his throne, and, and these elections are important, but we ultimately should, should find uh, our comfort in things beyond earthly elections. And that's not always a popular message, especially uh, yeah. given our flesh, Brent. Absolutely. Um, couple of thoughts. Ouch, that election was close and would have meant a gallon of ice cream inhaled for me, probably. And some kind of rom-com chick flick or something like that that night. <laughs> 13 votes. Oh, my. Second, it just reminds me, yes, we, um, you know, if there's any kind of evidence or, or of voter fraud or anything like that, we should take the proper legal channels. But it just reminds me how grateful we should feel to be in America, where we by and large do have a voter system that works and that is legal, where our votes count, where where things are not rigged and, and we're not led by a an authoritarian, an autocrat or whatever. So anyway, we are we are blessed to live in this country. 
for such a time as this. Okay, so my next thought is, or my next question is this. So, you know, we're part of the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. If Biden is the president-elect, there are probably going to be lots of our friends and family members, colleagues, you know, church members who are very distraught and who are uh, nervous about the future as far as being social conservatives and 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 some of the issues that that we care about. So talk to us about the results that's looking at like are going to pan out for the House and the Senate and why these things matter and why um, why those who are maybe fearful of the next four years, you know, uh, aside from resting in the Lord, of course, but why they can, you you know, just take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the House. Uh, as of our recording of this, it looks like Democrats have secured victory in 211 seats, and Republicans have uh, been victorious in 194. The Democrats have flipped two seats that were previously held by Republicans, and the GOP has flipped eight seats that were previously held by Democrats. So what does that mean? It means, um, well, I should say there there are 30 seats that are still outstanding where a, a winner has not yet been called. Uh, again, very normal, very normal. Uh, in a close election, it's very normal to, to just wait until every last vote is counted because, again, going back to the, the analysis of the numbers, you just don't have enough information in to uh, project a winner. That's all that 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 is very typical uh, in an election. What is a clear uh, what's pretty abundantly clear is that the Democrats are going to have a greatly diminished majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, so much so I, I even read something last night that uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the current speaker uh, who has signaled her intent to run again for Speaker of the House, she may have some uh, some problems getting the the requisite 218 votes that she needs uh, to be reelected speaker. That's very interesting to me uh, because there's nobody that counts votes uh, in the U.S. House <laughs> like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so to me, that signals that American voters uh, want the the Democratic House to take a more moderate centrist, middle-of-the-road approach instead of maybe some of the the more liberal uh, policies that were being bandied about uh, in the fall prior to the election. Yeah, Lindsay, I think that's such a good question. You know, at the, at the URLC, uh, we are the ethics and, I mean, we're the moral and public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as an organization, we're a nonpartisan organization. We don't support Republicans. We don't support Democrats. But we we are we're socially conservative. Just if you look at the portfolio of issues and where Southern Baptists uh, have come down on a wide range of social issues, th there's no doubt that the Southern Baptist Convention is a socially conservative denomination, and that's who we that that's who we represent and work for. And so, when we're looking at the makeup of the House of Representatives, you know, it is it's important because there there are especially some of the more I, I would just use the word like more radical or, or more extreme policies that might be supported by the Democratic Party. The, those uh, the difference between having a large Democratic majority in in the House versus uh, a more narrow majority, which is what we're looking at, uh, or it's, it seems to be shaping up here. This it, the difference is is 
pretty significant in terms of the kinds of legislation that they could support, the kinds of uh, legislation that is that is likely to pass. I think what what Brent said about the fact that we're we're looking at a a scenario where the federal government is going to be able to achieve kind of incremental uh, policy goals that are going to have to be forged between a likely Democratic House and a Republican Senate and then signed potentially by a Democratic president, that, that's going to temper and change and shape the kinds of legislation that gets through in a way that if one party had total control of the federal government uh, would, would be probably much more extreme than it otherwise would be. Okay, so uh, that's great analysis, Josh. Um, let's move now uh, to the, the U.S. Senate. Currently, again, as we are recording this, it appears that Republicans have won 48 seats in the, the Senate, and Democrats have won 48 seats in the Senate. There are four seats remaining that are either too close to call or it's just too early uh, to call. Uh, so in Georgia, we've got one race that is just, it, it's, it's, it's not enough there to, to know for sure that the Republican is one. And then the other one is definitely going to a runoff in January. A lot of folks that are looking at the, the final votes that are coming in in pretty heavily democratic areas in Georgia, uh, those analysts believe more than likely both seats will go to a runoff in January, which means, hey, for our listeners in Georgia, <laughs> if you thought you were done with election 2020, oh no, you just got a two-month extension, y'all. Uh, so there's going to be lots of television ads uh, airing in and around Georgia. The other two seats, uh, one is in Joshua's home state of North Carolina, where incumbent Senator Tom Tillis is, is locked in a, a pretty uh, heated race here. Um, currently, he is up, and most analysts think that he has banked enough votes uh, to win. But again, uh, there's some some really particular election procedures going on. Uh, for example, uh, mail-in ballots can be accepted through November 12th in North Carolina. Uh, they have to be postmarked by Election Day, uh, but they can be received up until November 12th. So, it's just a lot of unknowns about how many folks are are taking advantage of uh, the absentee program to to mail in their ballots, and so uh, we just have to wait and see on that one. And then the final one is Alaska, where it's still incredibly early. I think right now only thirty one percent of the ballots are in, and so we we just don't know yet the outcome of that election. Again, these these four uh, uh, the, the the four current uh, results unknown. Still, that's all very normal, very, very normal. But most folks think uh, that if Senator Tillis is reelected and in Georgia, uh, Senator Perdue is reelected, that gives Republicans uh, 50 votes, and that means they will retain control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, so more than likely, uh, that means that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, will retain his role as Majority Leader. And backing out from the Senate, taking the House uh, taking the, the House results, the Senate results, and, and what has happened on the presidential side. My takeaway from just looking at all that from a macro perspective is it seems to me that the American voters are trying to send a, a, a very clear signal that they want these sides to come together and they want to forge a middle-of-the-road coalition. What do I mean by that? They want 
former Vice President Biden, uh, who, who very likely is uh, going to be president-elect, they want him to work with the Senate and the House. They reduced the Democratic margins in the House, and they reelected, more than likely, uh, a Republican Senate. Uh, and they want these folks to come together. And the great news is, I, I was reading some stuff that suggested that Vice President Biden was already considering not putting uh, some of the the, the left-leaning voices, loudest voices from the U.S. Senate and his cabinet. Well, Mitch McConnell came back and said, hey, if we've got the Republican majority, I, I can assure you uh, that the folks that, that uh, Biden were to put on his potential cabinet would need to be more moderate centrist folks. Uh, so that to me is, is very encouraging. I think a lot of us that are out there just as American voters observing politics right now, we just want things to work again. We want people to, to not be jerks to one another uh, again in our, our political discourse. Uh, and look, we need that because we are in the midst of, of this public health crisis, which I, I know the election has sucked up all the oxygen in the room, but coronavirus uh, just yesterday, uh, we had 115,000 new cases, far outdistancing anything uh, that we saw in the spring. I mean, we are, y'all, this is what Dr. Anthony Fauci was saying. We, we may get to a point where we are routinely getting back 100,000 plus positive cases a day. That's here. And so we need folks uh, in our national leadership to come together and, and help us get past this moment. Honestly, like reflecting on all of this, I know not not everything is known yet, but we have a pretty good sense, at least in this moment, of what the future trajectory uh, is like, both in terms of the makeup of the Congress and also the trajectory of the presidential race right now. And speaking as a social conservative and somebody who uh, cares deeply uh, about politics, honestly, if you're a, you know, if you're an evangelical, you're a social conservative or a religious conservative in the United States right now, elections matter. They, they affect the way that we live our real lives. They have, uh, they, they have consequences as we talk about all the time, but uh, looking forward, you know, in terms of the makeup of the Congress for the next two years and potentially uh, Joe Biden as president in the White House for the next four years, we're in a place right now where because of the, particularly because of the makeup of Congress, where uh, there's there's not a lot of concern for some kinds of radical shifts. There's not, uh, you know, we're, we're not watching America lurch toward uh, secularism or some some of the other kinds of more extreme fears that that are out there on the right about what it would look like to have a, a Democratic president in the White House. Um, if you're a social conservative in the United States right now, you have a lot of reason for optimism and to be encouraged that, as Brent was talking about, that what, what we potentially are looking at is a situation where uh, our you know leaders in Washington are going to have to come together to get anything done, which means that it's going to be incremental, it's going to be based on compromise, and there, there's not going to be these kind of radical swings taking place after the inauguration in 2021. And so uh, that's something that should, I, I would just encourage uh, all of us, you know, we've used the phrase, take a deep breath, but, but really just, just be encouraged. You have every reason to, to be hopeful. And there's not any particular, uh, you know, package of, of legislation or initiative that is on the horizon. That is something that I think should cause us uh, to, to even be tremendously concerned right now. Right. I, I want to say just a couple of things because I'm noticing now all of a sudden some stuff uh, popping up on, on social media. There's a couple of things. A, in Arizona, 
that we have folks that have masked outside of the elections commission demanding to get in and and watch uh, the vote counting as it is going on. Uh, I should point out for listeners who are in Arizona, the local elections commission, uh, they have set up a 24-7 cam where you can watch via live stream uh, all that is going on. And at the same time, there are confirmed representatives of President Trump's campaign in the building who are personally, physically watching uh, the recount going on, as well as as well as Joe Biden uh, and officials from each of the state parties. Uh, so that that is happening there. Uh, as a matter of fact, that that's happening in in election commissions across the country. Don't fall prey to this. And then there is another thing. One of uh, the voices in uh, talk radio has just pointed out uh, that Vice President Biden is winning more votes than down-ballot Democrats in in various places. Okay, I want to say something very clearly. This happens every election. At the top of the ticket, whether it's president in a presidential year or a statewide election like governor or senator – whomever's name is at the top will always receive more votes because that's the high that's usually that is the highest profile election going on and that's the one that voters are are most uh comfortable with and then they get into the ballot and they see oh wait there's there's other people running for other offices i have no idea who these people are uh look we could have a podcast all on civics uh we're not going to go there but a lot of voters just get intimidated by that. And so what do they do? They don't fill out any of those those remaining spots. It is, it is so incredibly common to have ballots where only one office is filled in, and it's the office for president. That is a phenomenon known as undervote. And believe you me, as somebody who has worked on campaigns and, and for all kinds of campaigns around the country – that is incredibly frustrating, uh, but voters do that, and it's totally normal uh, to see that kind of disparity from the very top of the ticket all the way down. Undervote is a thing, and it's it, it's real. So it's not just something, again, that's unique to this campaign. I'm just saying this to lower the blood pressure, lower the temperature of folks who are looking for any little thing and, and want to say fraud. Y'all, that's not fraudulent. That's just unfortunately the way that American voters uh, behave when they get into the the ballot booth. Uh, so yeah, but again, circling back to what you said, Josh, I think there's a lot to be um, thankful for here that our system has carried out a, a 50 different uh, state elections uh, at one time, and that is our national election. And uh, again, I'm just so thankful for the election officials and volunteers who are doing hard work, uh, especially as these uh, these counts get finalized uh, here in just the, the next few hours, maybe next couple of days. That was really great. All right. So let's be honest, that that was your look at this week in culture, <laughs> because that's all we're talking about. Because that's the only thing happening. Yeah. But we shouldn't miss uh, that there were other things that happened in culture this week. So uh Across the pond, our friends in the United Kingdom and, and honestly all of Europe, they're, they're dealing with a new wave of coronavirus infections. Uh, it was announced this week uh, from uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson that the UK would be going back under a lockdown. Uh, and um, thankfully, this, this lockdown does not seem to be as stringent as the one that they did back in the spring. Um, but that, that is very much happening there. 
elsewhere while we're while we're talking about folks overseas, Scotland's favorite son, Sean Connery. Uh, he passed away at the age of 90 this week. What a fantastic actor and what a great career. Man. Yeah, so I'm, sad. It's so sad. And I mean, Connery is my favorite Bond. And every time I think of him, I say Scotland forever. He was iconic and what a loss. What a loss in this. It's still 2020. So, of course. Who can do their their best Scottish accent in in memory of Sean Connery? Bond. James Bond. There you go, Brent. That's pretty good. No, that sounded British. Uh, it's better than my Connery, I can tell you. Let's for sure. hear yours. Mm, I'll pass. I'll um <laughs> I'll work on it. Maybe next time. Oh, you're pat oh, come on, man. I mean, my best Sean Connery is probably like from the fake Sean Connery from S- from uh, SNL. Oh, you're a pretty little lassie. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Uh, I don't even know if that was Scottish. I don't know. Okay, well, so that's uh, that's what's happening uh, internationally here back home. The Red Cups are now back at Starbucks. The the holiday cups. They are back. Uh, how are you, one of how are co- you feeling about that? <laughs> Lindsay, do you have any thoughts on the Starbucks cups? I don't have any feelings about the Starbucks cups. I think um, hot take Starbucks drinks are highly overrated, although I do like to partake in one every once in a while. You know, it's just fun because it is ushering in the holiday season. And let's be honest, though, it's actually a little late, Right. Well, uh, it is 70-something degrees outside in November. We got we got pumpkin spice latte, what, in the last week of August? Really? That's that's kind of when your Christmas tree should be going up, folks. No, it's too hot for that. What is y'all's go-to holiday drink, if you have one? Okay, well, listen, if temperature is your barometer for celebrating Christmas, Lindsay, then, like, how did y'all ever do it in Jacksonville? Don't give me that. Get out of here. Well, that's, I didn't That's your ask- hottest take, and it's a garbage take. I didn't ask to be born in Florida, so I just, I just dealt with what I had. <laughs> so I, I would love to tell you that I'm just so manly that I only ever drink black coffee, and I do drink black coffee, and it doesn't taste good. It's just very utilitarian to yes, just pour coffee in a good. cup and drink it. But uh, man, at Starbucks, the white chocolate mocha is hard to beat. It is just really good. Hey, a good trick at Starbucks is to get your drinks half sweet. Because they will put you into a diabetic coma right away because they are so sweet. So half sweet. It makes them way better. That's a real pro tip. All right. uh, On the more important side of things, uh, there was an important oral argument this week at the U.S. Supreme Court, Fulton versus Philadelphia. This will be something that's important for our audience to watch because it deals with adoption regulations in the city of Philadelphia in regards to whether Christian organizations have to place uh, children within homes of same-sex couples. Uh, There are Christian organizations who are saying, hey, that goes against my convictions, don't want to do that. Uh, the the folks at the center of the case actually refer people to other places that would place in a in a same sex home, uh, but that that actually hasn't happened. 
uh, because no same-sex couples have come to uh, the organization in question. And so this is something that we are watching at the RLC and something that's very, uh, I think, important for for our work. We want to get this uh, resolved in a way that respects the religious liberty of faith-based organizations. And we have coverage of that case on our site. So we have an explainer telling a little bit more about the details, and then we also have a follow-up to that regarding the arguments that were made. So check those out on our site. Honestly, I'm really glad to see that this case has reached the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm hopeful for a very favorable decision here. This is an issue that we've been engaging for a number of years. Uh, Dr. Moore wrote a pretty huge piece on this same kind of topic uh, a few years ago. I think it was called uh, Let let Catholic adoption agencies be Catholic or something like that. But he was basically just making uh, the point that if it is be- because of somebody's religious faith or an organization's uh, religious faith that that these people came together for this purpose in the first place, don't make them reject or repudiate those religious convictions to do the thing that is doing so much good uh, in terms of, in this case, we're talking about adoption agencies where they're helping uh, children who don't have families and don't have homes find that kind of home, family, love, and support uh, that they'll need for the rest of their lives. And so we're really hopeful for a favorable decision here. This is a major issue, and it won't just affect uh, this, you know, the city of Philadelphia. It will affect uh, these kinds of policies in different places all all across the country. And so this is a major court case and definitely something to pay close attention to. Okay, folks. Before we hang up this call or end this podcast, um, so in the West Wing, which it's not an ERLC podcast unless there's a great West Wing reference. There's this and this one's big, a great one. This one's there's a great one. big plot line about uh, Pluey and who is a wolf and the wolves only highway and they really want to create this thing. And it actually happens on Big Block of Cheese Day. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, you need to go and watch the West Wing because – it will help you out. Uh, by the way, Big Block of Cheese Day was actually started by the Baptist. John Leland took it to Thomas Jefferson. So there you go. That happened before the whole James Madison storyline in the West Wing. But anyway, too, too much going on there. In the state of Colorado, they had a ballot measure called Colorado Proposition 114, Restore Gray Wolves. And it was a proposition that the people of Colorado voted on that would require that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission create a plan to reintroduce and manage gray wolves on designated lands west of the Continental Divide by the end of 2023. You might not know it, or you might not have thought it, But this was actually a pretty contested ballot initiative. And the with 90% of the votes in, right now it is 50.5% to 49.5%. And it looks like 1.5 million people voted, just over 1.5 million people voted for it and just under. I mean, 1,491,000 people voted against it. This is real stuff going on in Colorado, guys. Well, uh, the more important real stuff going on is, as we close, is to mention that Nashville had the most votes for Kanye as president. Well, Tennessee. How does that make you feel? Oh, Tennessee. I'm sorry. Tennessee had the most votes for Kanye as president. What was the number? Do you remember? He cracked 10,000. Was that that about right? I don't remember the number. I just think it's hilarious. Well, there you have it. That brings our podcast to a close. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good, Brent. Uh, thanks so much for that. And guys, this was a fun podcast uh, reflecting on the election. We're still uh, awaiting final calls and confirmations to see what's going to happen. And we'll be sticking with you and back next week uh, with more, not only on the election, but everything going on in the world of culture. But just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like our podcast, please help us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review for Brent and Lindsay and myself. We want to say thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week with more content.